Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is joining us from the Great White North, the producer and studio director at indie game studio Cardboard Utopia in Montreal. Brittany Martin is here. How's it going? Hi. How's it going? Happy to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So you and I are, are pretty good buddies, and we've talked a lot about horror over the last couple of years, but I don't think that we've ever actually talked about how you got into horror. So why don't you tell us about, you know, if it was something you watched a lot of growing up, that kind of thing. So I watched some horror movies growing up, but it's only fairly recently, I would say in the last five years or so that I really got into horror. Uh, I've always been, I was like in high school, I was always kind of the goth kid. Um, so you would think that horror movies kind of, and weird things kind of come with the territory, but I was kind of a wiener. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't really fully embrace it until much later on. And now I think I would probably I was probably playing more horror games if I'd, mm -hmm. and if anything, and I think that horror as a, as a genre is able to really convey a lot of like human complexity and human emotion and the human experience a lot more than some other genres, which I think is great and which is why I love horror right now. So yeah, yeah. I totally agree, <laughs> and I also I think it's really funny that you played more horror video games just because as someone who loves horror i still have a really tough time with horror <laughs> video games just because like you're so much like, you're so much in it at yeah. least with like watching a movie i can like kind of remove myself from it but having to actually control it i'm still screaming like a like a little baby i mean <laughs> i i have a i have a brother who's like only a year and a half younger than me so i have fond memories of us playing the first Silent Hill oh, in his bedroom uh, with the lights off at night. Wow. And like just the radio crackle comes on. And I remember oh, yeah. just like throwing the controller <laughs> at him and being like, your turn. <laughs> so yeah. damn, that's a, that's an intense one for sure. Yeah. Um, the man, the Silent Hill games are great, but um, do you have uh, a favorite subgenre of horror? Like you said you are, in, you like that it explores some of, these uh human condition things I i'm curious if the more recent like art house horror are movies that you're into um that kind of thing they definitely are actually midsummer and hereditary lately have been like amazing obviously mm -hmm. I I actually I still love Hereditary more than Midsummer. I don't know how you feel. Okay, you yeah, do. Okay, I, feel the same. I wasn't sure, um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely like that art house. But you know, I love a good monster horror movie. Hell yeah, too. Hell yeah, so, me too. Yeah, um, especially okay. So like, really staunch feminist here, but like, I really love just the feminism that comes out um, and the sexual empowerment that comes out and subverting the male gaze while using the male gaze in mm -hmm. movies like Ginger Snaps, where we're about to talk about, and Jennifer's Body. So that's kind of like my niche there. Yeah, And I, I particularly think that a lot of horror movies have all women main characters a lot of the time, especially lately, uh, which yeah. I find is is great we talked about it so by the time that this comes out the episode will have already been out for probably like a month it's coming out tomorrow as we record this <laughs> and uh we talked about a uh, new nightmare from the nightmare on elm street series Thanks. and there's a really interesting dynamic in slasher movies where 
um, there is a lot of institutionalized sexism in the way that it handles women and, you know, a lot of uh, victimization that happens where it's a lot of, about, like, putting women through this intense situation and, and attacks and, and everything. But as our guest Mabel pointed out, so often uh, the woman is triumphant over yeah. the the male typically perpetrator uh, at the end of the movie. And so there's kind of an interesting ebb and flow to to the way that it's presented that that I think um is is really fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Like I I completely agree. Like it's there's so often that the final uh scene is the woman triumphant with I don't know, just having killed her killer or vanquished him or yeah. whatever. I uh I'm I'm rewatching Buffy now for the millionth time, so I feel like <laughs> I'm in that space. I'm in that headspace yeah, right sure. now too. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so as you said, the movie that we're talking about today, classic Canadian werewolf movie from the turn of the millennium, Ginger Snaps. Yeah. It's great. Right off the bat, I love the name's double entendre of uh, Ginger Snaps the food and Ginger the person snapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, it's, I feel like it's such an evocative name. Like, so many times, even something that is as iconic as something like Scream like it, it's it feels very bland compared to a name like Ginger Snaps. Um, I don't know why this name just has always stuck with me, even before I had seen it. It was it was this really just something that had always drawn me as a as a unique title. Um, I, I I agree. I also I feel like Catherine Isabel like embodies it so yeah. much yeah, as well sure. um, because I don't know if you look at her, she kind she has a sweet face and whatever and so it's like the cookie but then like her character's name is ginger and then who snaps and i don't know she's she's great like i loved i love her in horror movies uh when she teamed up with the Soska sisters to do american mary like i loved her in that as well and yeah 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 she she is great and uh, i think that this movie is also interesting because werewolf movies had kind of died off in the last uh the last few years of the 80s and there was only a few, certainly nothing that really struck big in the 90s until this movie came out. And then they sort of started re- uh, revamping up again, and more and more werewolf movies started coming out. But this was the first one that really found a footing in over a decade. And it's very much not within the werewolf, the normal werewolf tropes either. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, hey, you turn during the full moon and then you turn back to human. Like, it's very clear that in this movie, she's turning and there's no real way back. Like, even mm-hmm. even the, the werewolf that's already terrorizing the town that gets hit by Sam's van, like, it's just this beast. Yeah, I think that at one point he literally even says, like, forget that Hollywood bullshit. Yeah. Or, or like yeah. something to that effect. And uh, and that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, literally, he was, yeah, I'm just remembering that literally the only thing that he was like, oh, yeah, it's a werewolf. It's because he had an uncircumcised dick. No, yeah, I think, I think it was that it was circumcised. Right, and he yeah. was like, he was like, oh, like, why would a wolf have a circumcised penis? Well, it's a valid True. point. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that's that's how they know, and, uh, and and yeah, like there's a lot of the tropes that kind of get thrown out where, and they acknowledge them where they're like, oh, a silver bullet doesn't actually, no. it's not what you need to kill them. You know, my van did a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, it is definitely interesting in the way that it kind of takes the werewolf shell, but then subverts a lot of what made it 
what it was up to that point. So definitely uh, a unique, unique movie. So it was directed by John Fawcett and co-written by him in tandem with Karen Walton. Fawcett also directed 2005 Sean Bean vehicle, The Dark, but he's probably best known for directing Orphan Black, which Karen was a producer on. So mm-hmm. they got to work uh, together again. Orphan Black's great. I fucking love Orphan Black. <laughs> I mean, Karen, she said that she was apprehensive about writing this movie because of the horror genre's proclivity towards portraying women in a negative light in a lot of the ways that we've already talked about but the way that women are often portrayed as like um airheaded and and there's a lot of sort of uh sexist tendencies towards the characterization of women a lot of the time and basically john and karen were like all right we're gonna do this but we're gonna do it because we're gonna break those cliches and that was kind of the goal of this movie going into it was making sure that it wasn't going to continue perpetuating this uh, cycle of sexism and the way that, you know, creating that gaze and, and the like acceptance of it in average culture, the way that you can break out of that is by putting art that subverts it into the world. And that was the goal. And I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, I completely agree, honestly. Yeah, like it's really about these two teen girls' lives. Um, And even when you think they're going to go there in terms of conflating Ginger getting her period for the first time with, uh, oh, are they trying to create a metaphor that women on their periods are scary like werewolves? Yeah. (laughs) But no, it doesn't, it it really doesn't go that way. I, um, yeah even though she's very late to get her period at 16. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, that was uh, that's I think a big part of it. They uh, it's something that's like known around the campus it feels like of the school where uh it's it's something that has been kind of explored before. I mean, Carrie is a really yes, great example yeah. of something where uh, a woman is ostracized because of that sort of lateness and then because they're able to kind of use this onset of uh, lycanthropy as a metaphor for coming into this and and having their first period and and hitting puberty it it just really it's it's such an effective metaphor that it's honestly kind of shocking that it took until the year 2000 to, <laughs> to get uh, to. that that scene with the nurse where she's like oh my god it's so it's so good it was so good where she where she's just like yeah it's all normal and the two the two sisters are like are you sure that it's a lot of blood? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like the disgust on, on uh, Ginger's face when, like when she's talking, it's, it's really, really great. But getting this movie made was not uh, as easy as people might suspect considering, th- I mean, it's a relatively beloved movie now at this point, sort of a cult classic, but it had a tough time even just casting the movie. I mean, It was a a different time, and Canadian casting directors were appalled by the horror and the gore and the language in it, and especially, so I'll just uh, bake the content warning right into into this, because (laughs) there's a a lot of talk of, like, suicide and, and killing yourself, doing it sort of for effect that is explored in this movie and so the it's it's a sensitive topic and the frankness with which this movie kind of confronts it i think is both authentic and also it it helps it sort of stand out a little bit I, i think that the things that make it shocking are also what make it so interesting yeah i agree uh i also 
I can kind of attest to the authenticity of that because I did see this movie. So as much as I didn't watch too many horror movies, I don't even know how Ginger Snaps came on my radar when I was 12, 13. Because uh, mm-hmm. I was, uh, yeah, I was 12, 13 when the movie came out. Um, and I watched it then. And like I was saying, I was like a goth teen. I was like edgy. <laughs> and I, it really kind of spoke to me in that regard. Like I was super depressed and... I don't know, it's just like like seeing it now it's it's kind of funny because you you enter this scene and it's this idyllic suburban neighborhood, all the houses are the same, everyone's like cheerful and neighborly and then there's these two sisters <laughs> who are very much against all of that, have their own suicide pact and like that opening montage, uh the opening credits of them creating and taking death photos for their life in Bailey Downs assignment is just like so iconic to me to the mm-hmm. point where I remember after watching the movie, I was like, I- I'm going to make fake blood and try to recreate death photos too in my neighborhood. <laughs> and I think I remember doing one in, cause I had woods near my house where I grew up and I, I did do it. I, I remember it. <laughs> it's funny too, because like, yeah, I totally could like, even though I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was goth, but I certainly would have made those sort of like edgy, uh, like suicide <laughs> jokes as, as a kid, you know, as you grow up, I look at it now and I'm like, this feels like how teenagers talk when yeah. they're like, everything is so dramatic and this is the worst time in my life and high school sucks and, and they're being bullied and, you know, it feels like the end of the world to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, if whether they're being serious about su- uh, suicidal ideation, in which case they should hopefully get some help yes or if they're using dark humor to try and take the edge off you know that is something that a lot of teenagers go through i feel like at the beginning of the movie they were serious about it but i think that by the end i think b really realizes like hey no like i want my sister to live like she's trying to get her sister to live and be okay again and yeah. That they have they have more to live for. That it's yeah. not just that they only have each other, and that uh, there needs to be more. But yeah, I mean, when this movie was being made, even though they had already agreed to pick up the film, the Columbine shootings happened, and there was another school shooting in Alberta, and so this sort of idea of teenage violence, a, a topic which is confronted in this movie, basically the Toronto Star was like, hey, Telefilm is funding a teen slasher movie. And so it like started this huge firestorm of debate and outrage, and there was a ton of backlash against the movie. And the role of Ginger was originally offered to Sarah Polly, who we talked about mm-hmm. in the uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. And uh, Natasha Leone was also considered for it, which I think would have been interesting. I, 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 was, I could see that. I could see yeah. Natasha Leone doing it, actually. No, I, I could totally see that. Yeah, um, but they, they both declined, and, and it took them six months to find the two stars of the movie. And interestingly, they found both Perkins and Isabel on the same day. But they didn't just audition the same day. Uh, the two actresses were also born in the same hospital, attended the same preschool, elementary school, and then private school, and worked through the same talent agency. So Canada, we're, we're just we're just we're just a small village up here. We all know each other. And just clearly, it is up clearly. Here. <laughs> 
But yeah, so so the movie stars Emily Perkins as Bridget. She's also in She's the Man, which falls into one of my two <laughs> uh, hyper-specific favorite genres, <laughs> which are People Looking at Files is number one, and number two is uh, Updates of Shakespeare is my <laughs> second favorite genre. So she's great in those. Uh, and she was also Beverly Marsh in the TV version of It, so she is yep. actually partially responsible for scaring me off from horror as a kid. I hold her responsible, <laughs> Emily Perkins. Um, but she's she's I think she's really really spectacular in this. Catherine Isabel, who I'll talk about in a second, sort of has a little bit more of the flashier role in this, I think. But yep. Emily Perkins as Bridget, I think, really knocks it out of the park. She really grounds it and has the emotional stakes of the movie playing out through her, and I think just does a, a fantastic she, job. She it. has, like, that teenage angst scowl down. Yeah. Down. <laughs> the it's, very first shot of her. It's perfect. Man. <laughs> 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 yeah, so Catherine Isabel plays the titular Ginger. Uh, she's actually the daughter of Graham Murray, who was a production designer and art director who won two Emmys for his uh, work on the effects of the X-Files. So, uh, nice connection to classic horror and sci-fi there. And uh, she and Emily Perkins actually both appeared on the X-Files several years apart, which was uh, another connection between them. She, as you said, was also in American Mary. She was in Freddy vs. Jason. She was in uh, The Hannibal Show. And she was in Bad Times at El Royale, which was a movie that I liked. So <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. People should check it out. I feel like it, it kind of got l- overlooked a little bit, but I digress. Except for <laughs> except for all the gifts of uh, Chris Hemsworth dancing that's true, shirtless, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's true. Okay. It got memed. It got memed a bit, but it, it's it's great on top of that. And uh, the two of them actually wound up working together again as sisters in uh, the sequel to a Cinderella story. Both were also in Supernatural, although not together. So. They made the rounds through the classic horror uh, yep. franchises and stuff, you know? Supernatural filmed in Canada, you know, you gotta there get you the go. Canadian talent. Hell yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. And speaking of, Chris Lemche uh, rounds out the main trio as Sam, who was also in Final Destination 3, which is a uh, franchise that I have an immense fondness for. But also, more importantly, Canadian TV icon Goosebumps. Yes! He was in that as well, so... <laughs> Um, and uh, Jesse Moss, who plays Jason, was also in Final Destination 3, as well as Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. So, really, uh, the people in this movie have a lot of horror bona fides. Um, they really have done a great job in a lot of fun stuff. So, the movie was uh, shot between October 25th and December 6th in 1999 with just a $4.5 million budget, which is uh, not exactly as large as you usually have for nope. something that is so special effects heavy. I, I mean, on top of just needing a lot of effects for horror, a werewolf movie in particular has a lot of prosthetics and stuff that you need to go through. So, and they're really actually and they're great in the movie. I was mm-hmm. I it, when I was rewatching it to to record this, I hadn't seen it in at least a few years, and I was again impressed at how well the special effects were done. The werewolf looks great. It oh, like yeah. it it kind of gets this rap of being a B movie, but honestly like it's not it looks it great doesn't yeah, feel it, like it <laughs> no definitely not definitely not and i mean the fact that they compressed this into just a little over six weeks pretty impressive that they managed to get it done that quick it filmed in three toronto suburbs tobacoke 
Brampton, which is where Chris Lemche was actually from, and Scarborough. Uh, but the problem was that shooting outside during Toronto's winters for 16 hours a day, six days a week, meant that people were pretty much getting constantly sick, and it was just running through the crew. So, oh um, yeah, <laughs> a lot of sick days there, I'm sure. But Final Cut was done after eight weeks, which is an insanely short amount of time for Brett Sullivan and the editing team to uh, get that done. But it was nominated for a Genie Award in editing, so classic case of pressure turning coal to diamonds, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing for the sound department, which was also uh, nominated for an editing Genie Award. So nice great, job great soundtrack, honestly. Oh yeah, it really is, and I think a lot of the like visceral moments in this movie uh, have really impactful sound design, like. When not to jump too far ahead, but when she falls and hits her head on the counter, the like <laughs> the noise that it makes, yeah, and, like yeah. I feel like it that in my gut, funk, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you know what's happened before you even see it, just from the noise, and that is the power of sound design. <laughs> <laughs> Can't see it, but I'm doing finger guns. <laughs> And as we sort of alluded to, John Fawcett, he refused to have any CGI effects in the film. He wanted all the special creature effects to be done with prosthetics and makeup, which I love. Because, I mean, look, there's no denying that CGI can be great for, like, hiding stuff or doing touch-ups. But practical effects just can't – you just can't beat it in terms of, like, feeling like what you're looking at is real because it is. Uh, The drawback of this is, of course, production costs and time for the cast because – I always feel so bad for the actors who go through it because Ginger's monster makeup would take three hours to apply and an additional 45 minutes to remove after shooting. And then the actual metamorphosis towards the end where like she's like really going through it. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it looks amazing, but it's obviously effects heavy and it took seven hours in the makeup Uh, chair. I feel for honestly, the way that they did Ginger's metamorphosis, the fact like every, almost every scene something new is going on whether Mm -hmm. it's like the nails more gray streaks in her hair i was watching and i was like oh this is so well done and so well thought Mm -hmm. out yeah it's like the pacing of the reveal as it happens is just perfectly perfectly done not a fun time for isabel though she had a hard time seeing through the contacts and she had like the mouthpiece in that made it hard (laughs) for her to talk so i don't know how she was able to talk through those fangs that they had in her mouth yeah. at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Acting, I guess, is that yeah. <laughs> Acting! <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, many of the, uh, like, quote-unquote day scenes had to be scheduled to be shot at night. And so they brought in these 18-kilowatt lights to Oof. flood the location. And, I mean, like, I've heard of doing day for night pretty frequently. It doesn't look very good. But I've literally never heard of night night for day before, that they're literally getting these, like, mile-high planes we're seeing this light <laughs> emanating from this little spot in the suburbs as they're filming. So just, just a lot of interesting and unique sort of uh, working around the typical way that things are done. I, I wonder, because uh, their, their neighborhood, it's like, I wonder if it was just because it's the only place they could get, or if it just worked with the movie, because the neighborhood that they're filming in is like a new development and some of the houses aren't even finished like ginger and bridget's room is in an unfinished basement of the house so you see all like the wood uh frames and like etc and like the walls aren't finished and i wonder if that was intentional or if they were like yeah this is perfect place 
for us yeah. to shoot. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting because it does sort of makes it, you get immediately how separated Ginger and Bridget are from everyone. Just from like this like stripped down basement that they're living in is so far removed even just from the like the like nice furnished upstairs that yeah. their parents are in. That's so like, uh, I'm doing finger quotes here, uh, <laughs> perfectly normal like suburb shit. It's an interesting visual dichotomy that they that they present there. Mm-hmm. Once it came out, once they finally got it made, it even still was having difficulty because, you know, some places in the UK were banning it because it was promoting, quote unquote, violence among teenagers. But when the VHS came out, it was huge, even in the UK. And uh, it didn't do very well in the US as well in terms of theatrical release. But because it was cheap, HBO picked up the rights and they would show it a lot. And it just sort of like picked up steam with uh, because a lot of people were getting into this sort of metaphor of werewolf as puberty. Like it's not only is it pretty unique, it's also something that really, you know, people go through puberty. And so mm-hmm. when you have something that is so able to speak to people on a personal level like that, it's easy for people to feel attached to it and find that connection point. And that's how this movie sort of got its claws into, uh, <laughs> into the culture. Hey, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it did wind up becoming sort of a cult classic, which is great to see. And uh, yeah, people, people love it now. And I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that's the case because it really deserves to be seen by uh, as many people as possible, I think. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Ooh, this is the ghost of George, and it's getting to be the spooky season. However, you're getting your scares in, they go better with Tuck Ins, the all in one inside out s'more. Each Tuck In has crunchy handmade graham cracker covered in decadent chocolate, all tucked inside a fluffy marshmallow. And the best part is, because they're self contained, you can roast them anywhere around a fire pit while you're telling ghost stories, or even just over the stove for a sweet movie treat alternative to popcorn. Uh, They also come in multiple flavors, and while you can't go wrong with classic, I gotta say that I'm a cookies and cream guy personally. Plus, it's a local company owned by two previous guests on this very show. And since they like the show so much, they're giving listeners a 15% discount if you use the offer code BEST15 at tuckins.com. That's BEST15 at T-U-C-K-I-N-S.com for 15% off. So don't wind up with a bag of stale mallows in the back of your pantry. Check out Tuckins today. And now, back to the show. Getting into the actual movie, as, as you mentioned already, there is sort of this like classic visual language that they set things up with in terms of like, you get this sea of similar looking houses. You immediately are like, I get this boredom of suburbia. I yeah. understand what it's, they're it's, trying to it's say It's like here. a typical new housing development mm-hmm. neighborhood and the suburbs. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. yeah. And, uh, we're introduced to the town of Bailey Downs. And unlike most movies that start this way, in which this is kind of, it starts off usually very placid for a while, this movie is immediately shatters that piece because Mm -hmm. the first scene is a kid finding a dog paw in the sandbox and then the mom finding just an absolutely brutalized dog. Um, one of several, thanks to a rash of dog killings in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's the other trigger warning, I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. is that this movie has so much dog death. Yeah, because yeah. Apparently, people who don't do well with that, uh, yeah. you're not going to enjoy this. I, I, I like, I, when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh, I forgot just how <laughs> much of it. Apparently, werewolves in this universe really do not like other canines. Yeah, yeah, there's a... Uh, <laughs> 
definitely a, a, a unfortunate amount of it, but it, you don't get to have any time to like soak in the peace of the neighborhood. No. It just immediately. No, yeah. And the fact that they communicate that this has been happening um, all over town, I just think it's really cool how it sort of blends the visual language of a teen or a high school movie with a horror movie immediately. And, of course, we get our first shot of hockey two minutes and ten seconds in. <laughs> so. There are three types of hockey referenced in this movie. Yeah. Three. It's and very it's very Canadian, in case you're wondering. S- several, <laughs> several scenes of it. Uh, but Bridget comes out, and she sort of witnesses the caterwauling owner of Baxter. And this is a really great introduction to her, because, like we said, she has this scowl on her face and she's totally unfazed and she tells her own barking dog to shut up and she walks inside to tell her sister ginger that baxter is fertilizer while ginger rocks a knife back and forth against her wrist so you really understand who these people are immediately (laughs) yes but you know what you forgot george what's that what was their mom taking out of the trunk in that opening scene to establish. Oh, was it the it was it the monk's hood? Yeah, it was the craft wow. supplies. <laughs> they they got it all. That's a classic <laughs> setup and the payoff later. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I didn't even notice that, but that's a uh, that's great. Hey, yeah, it was it was all set up ahead of time. Like all the craft supplies, she's taking it out. You see it right away at the like the opening scene. Wow. The, there yeah. you go. Perfect. <laughs> nice job, writers. But. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quickly obvious that these two girls have an obsession with death, talking about how they're going to kill themselves and how the suicide is the ultimate fuck you. And this is part of a reveal that, as children, they formed the pact to move out of the suburbs or die together by the age of 16, which 16 feels like a very young age to be like, we're moving out and being on our own. But, uh, yeah, you know, but I, I and I think they said that they made the pact at eight yeah so, exactly yeah they, they were literally children and bridget even says that she was like we were kids like what the fuck did we know and ginger is like no we made the pact we have to stick to it and uh it's uh it's intense but which specifically ginger is 16 at this point and bridget yeah. is 15 although they right. although you see them in the same class and later they mention oh yeah bridget skipped a grade and, right yeah yeah and uh they do like a team rocket chant and they hold yeah. hands and they, <laughs> they we see that they have like matching scars on their uh on their hands and uh that's when we get the opening credits that you were talking about and they're really just really awesome they roll over these shots of the girls having faked their own deaths uh, which had to be shot on location at an actual home and so whenever they had to like come back in covered in gore and stuff someone had to distract like the kid that was living in that house because he was only four years <laughs> old and so he, he would have he like freaked out the Wait, first time and, what's your favorite opening credits death um i love the one with the like pitchfork uh like stuff oh, yeah. through her neck i think that's a really fun one especially because i'm like how would that even happen <laughs> I, I really like the fence, the white picket fence, because That's of like the the symbol sure. the right. But also the lawnmower. They had all of the like gross Viscera. intestine yeah. gore coming out too. That was pretty. That's weird. a fun one. That's yeah. a really fun one. Yeah, that one's cool. I also, I mean, at this point, we're just gonna go through all of them. But I mean, I like <laughs> the one where where Bridget is like in the foreground and she like has all like the markings all over her, and Ginger is in the back. Um, cool stuff it's it's a really great opening scenes and people who listen to the show know that i I love a good opening credit scene i think that it's a really important way to set the tone of your movie and um they do something really interesting and fun with it and it looks great and i i think it rules so 
There you go. And it turns out that this was for a school project entitled Life in Bailey Downs. And the teacher is disgusted. <laughs> and he he tells them to see him in the guidance office. So big uh, womp womp for them there. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Although the, their classmates think it's cool, but they right. also are ostracized as, you know, the weird sisters. So... Right, yeah, it's like, uh, and the way that the teacher handles it is so bizarre. Like, it's so yeah. funny. He's like, he's so we're shocked. disgusted, aren't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but it's really great. And cut to our second hockey shot. Uh, this time, field hockey, and um, yep. the, Fitz, the Fitzgerald sisters are sort of lingering towards the back, smoking a cigarette while Ginger is being ogled by a group of gross boys because her back hurts, and so she's right. arching it. So you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, while they're there, they start imagining the death of and insulting one of their peers, Trina Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Um, but one wait, of Trina- wait, wait, actually, George, you talked about the boys in the stands. Can yeah. we just mention the peak '90s Canadian fashion of <laughs> the jean overalls over a hoodie? <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a lot. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> Peak, peak fashion. Hey, (laughs) it represents the times perfectly. What can I say? (laughs) But yeah, they're they're off on the stands being gross, and and they start insulting Trina and the Trina's a pretty popular girl, the blonde. Exactly. Yes. Very. uh, She like has she has this boyfriend that uh, is the school drug dealer, and and so there's a lot going on with Trina as well, but. Uh, one of her friends is passing behind the Fitzgerald sisters and hears them and snitches on them to Trina. And so field hockey starts up and uh, the boys catcalling distracts Ginger from covering her sister, uh, who gets just laid the fuck out by Trina. Like, mm-hmm. This is an, a serious hit. And Bridget falls into yet another dead dog, which I guess nobody noticed. Yeah, okay. Dead dog no, when that happened, I was like, wait, that dog is in the middle of the field. Yeah. yeah. Like, where? What? I don't, I don't know how nobody noticed that one, but uh, but yeah, Bridget gets a face full of it, so yeah. that's not ideal for her. No. To get revenge, they're like, oh, they're off in the bathroom cleaning up, and they're like, oh, we're going to kidnap her dog and make it look like it's another victim. And as they're walking home to sort of get this plan enacted and everything, Ginger is approached by one of the gross boys who says that they should get together. And uh, I really I really like this scene a lot. I think that the way that Isabel handles it. I just love the way Catherine Isabel was like, no. Yeah, like she like thinks about like what what like what made you think this was a good idea and like just flatly says uh, no. She has and the best bitch face, honestly, the best <laughs> bitch faces. It's great, top and tier. on top of that, I think that it, it's the fact that she uh, she could have been much ruder. I mean, this kid fucking sucks, and she just says no. I mean, that's about as nice of a turndown as you possibly could get, mm-hmm. and she walks off, and then this guy calls her a bitch, and it's like, what? Fuck you, bro. <laughs> like, she didn't. She just said no, but he like you sort of see this the way that men treat women is sort is something that comes up a lot in this movie in terms of how ginger is treated by men once she starts going through this process and uh how that sort of leaves bridget behind 
it's it's really interesting. I think that this is a, a great sort of well, opening taste of it, where like you just sort of it's setting the uh, setting the playing field for that to come into play later. Yeah, it definitely is. Considering her back pain is because the onset of her period, and when they're finally home and having dinner, they're kind of grossed out at the idea of puberty and having periods and. And Ginger even tells Bridget, like, if she ever acts like all the other girls are acting, like, to just kill her because she doesn't want to. Yeah, she'd rather be dead than average, she says. Yeah, so, and of course the mom's getting all happy. Oh my god, the mom, (laughs) I have She's so much. So I, I have so much to say about their mom. <laughs> She's like, it's so funny how she's like this archetypical mom character who all like, these baked goods, yeah. all these happy, sunny disposition, right? But it's it's covering up this really. Th- there's a lot of depth to her in terms of like the by way the that end. She, there's so much depth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's she's a really interesting character because she really like. We'll talk about it as it comes up, but th- there's there's more to her than meets the eye, which I think uh, is is nice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, at at dinner, the mom notices Ginger rubbing her back, and so she like starts to suspect. And this is when Ginger gets pissed, and she winds up getting sent to her room. And we also find out that the parents aren't counseling here, which is uh, something that I think it is warranted. Set, yeah, it, well, first of all, it absolutely is warranted, but it also sort of helps set the like environment of maybe why these girls are so disaffected mm-hmm. if their parents are in a struggling relationship yeah. and uh, they call the period the curse which i think yeah. is which i think is great uh especially when it's juxtaposed against uh lycanthropy later on mm-hmm. yeah it's it's really great and they they go out that night to because go their parents are dog. in therapy and they're gonna do the trina plan. right exactly they find another dead dog and it's still warm and Ginger is like, oh, this is great. We can just use, like, we can make it even more effective and like leave this body <laughs> for Trina to find and, and make her think that it's her dog. But she does indeed begin her first period at that moment. And like you said, it's it's this fun foreshadowing where she says, I've got the curse. And it does sort of call it, it, it draws the line between but, the... Uh, yeah, but also the only reason, they, they allude that the only reason she got attacked was because of the blood. Anyways, the werewolf. Right, drawn to the blood of her period. Yeah, exactly, and and it, this blood results in in her a being, literal curse. <laughs> yeah, and she gets pulled off, like she gets dragged away. It's a shocking moment when she gets attacked, and you don't really get to see it, which I think is is a lot of fun. It's really intense, and you this just is hear ca- you just hear Ginger just screaming at the top yeah. of her lungs. Yeah. yeah, it's it's wild and and Ginger gets bit and Bridget sort of rescues her for, like by flashing the light of the camera in mm-hmm. its eyes and it it freaks out but the camera jams and so the picture is stuck in there and uh, they manage to scramble away and as they're running away uh, the creature is running is running after them but gets hit by the van belonging to Sam Miller the local drug dealer that we were talking about this is uh, Lemche and I think this is a really great shot as we finally get a quick glimpse of it in the light just mm-hmm. in time for it to like explode <laughs> into yeah. a huge mess of blood and guts but we do get also that establishing shot of like when they zoom back and you just see like this mangled body mm, in the yeah. headlights of the van yeah, yeah. It's, it's really great and and finally getting a chance to get a, a little glimpse of it is is awesome. Ginger is really fucked up. Like Super she fucked is up. yeah, she is gushing blood, but 
her wounds start to heal really quickly. Like which, at one, which if they hadn't healed that quickly, I would have been like, why isn't she going to the hospital right now? Right. But, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> she. Uh, she. I mean, Bridget wants to take her to the hospital, and she's like, no, no, it doesn't even hurt anymore. And then you look at it, and it's closing up, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh shit, what the hell? And Bridget pulls a jammed photo out of her camera, and it's a blurry close up of the wolf, which I yeah. think is really spooky and effective. And, yeah, you and just kind of nice see look. the white muzzle and an eye. Yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> it's really creepy. And following the attack, Ginger is sort of, she's in agony, and she assumes that it's from the cramps that she's having. And in fact, it may be that on top of her body becoming a werewolf. Why not both? Yeah, both. exactly. Both. Porque no los dos, as they say. But... Bridget suspects that it's something more, especially since she's now seen this photo. And she gets approached by the creepy kid from before. His name is Jason. The one who asked her out lures Ginger into a van with the other creeps to smoke some weed and take the edge off her pain. And she says she it doesn't it didn't work, but she just doesn't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is kind of yeah, a funny this, line. This was uh this was post them being in the store trying to get tampons. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, I just, I've been Ginger in that scene where she's like <laughs> she's just pacing behind Bridget, like w- with an annoyed, pained scowl on her face, oh, yeah. like she's just like, grab one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she uh, she does not look like she's having a good time. She does go and she she smokes in the van, and Bridget is really concerned about what's going on here. Not only because this is unusual behavior for Ginger to not only be doing drugs, but to even be caring what this Jason kid thinks and and, and hanging out with him and everything. And she talks to Sam, the drug dealer, about what he hit with the van. And he says, although he says it sarcastically, if you kind of like read between the lines, you can see that he's actually just being upfront about what he thinks. And he, mm. he says that he thinks that he hit a werewolf and says like, like he says a lycanthrope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and Bridget's like a werewolf. And he's like, oh, you knew what a lycanthrope was? <laughs> like basically. <laughs> yeah. It, very, uh, very patronizing. I really, I think that he does a great job with this character, Sam. He's kind of a shithead, but you still like him. <laughs> he's great he's a great character yeah, yeah yeah he really is and he and he realizes that they're in his van <laughs> he yeah. kicks them out they didn't get permission or anything no they, they just, just opened it the, <laughs> you know the drug dealer's van's right there gonna go that, smoke um, in it <laughs> that's a really good way to get killed i think <laughs> but yeah trina and her dog are also there and uh the dog freaks out barking at ginger and ginger like just straight up kicks this dog yeah <laughs> In the face. <laughs> it's like, it, it's shocking that she like literally just like, boom, boot right in its face. And yeah. she like kind of runs off. And when Bridget follows her, Ginger shows her that the scars uh, on her shoulder have started growing hair. Yep. And Bridget sort of implies to Ginger that, hey, you're a werewolf dog. <laughs> but, <laughs> you're a werewolf um, dog. <laughs> <laughs> literally, yeah. And... She's interrupted by Ginger bleeding onto the floor from her heavy period. Yeah. She like again, you're Which, not really sure if this is something from 
the werewolf like uh, exacerbating the the period flow the heaviness of it but she's disgusted she they uh, go to the nurse honestly like, i feel like a lot of women have that experience when they get their first periods where mm-hmm. it's just like am i dying that's a lot of blood i mean everyone's periods are different but yeah, it's just, it can be shocking. But I, I feel one point when they're in that bathroom stall, they, you see the fur and then they, she's bleeding. I'm like, what was their sex ed like, honestly? And then I'm like, re- I'm remembering my own sex ed. I'm like, oh, eh. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably not great. <laughs> yeah. um. But like, Especially- also, yeah, also just people don't get their periods that late anymore. Like, it's, it's very early on like 11 10 even sometimes yeah well and on top of that we've seen that as much as the mom is sort of like trying to handle things from a distance like it they don't seem like the kind of parents who would have like had an in-depth talk about their sex life or anything no with the kids no. um it's i mean especially the dad who is just insanely ineffectual uh, just makes facial expressions movie. doesn't really yeah. talk much yeah exactly <laughs> he's he's kind of just like furniture he's like a set piece yeah. on, like, in this uh and obviously i think it's very deliberate that he's sort of this like caveman character like he's like eating meat with his with his hands for sure <laughs> like but yeah she they go to the nurse and best scene one of the best scenes in the movie <laughs> really awesome i the way that bridget says it where she's like we gotta see the nurse <laughs> That's a really just great delivery. But yeah, the nurse comforts her and she says that it's normal and and they're asking questions like, steps. yeah, is it, it's a lot of blood. It, there's hair in places yeah. that I don't normally have hair. And the nurse is like, that's normal. That's yeah. going to happen. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's really funny. She has this sort of like cheery demeanor that really sort of provides a nice balance to what we've sort of seen so far in terms of the attitude of the Fitzgerald sisters in general. I, I, I think that scene is really, really just great. And, um, Bridget and Ginger get into a fight when Ginger thinks that Bridget told their mom when in fact their mom found her underwear that had blood all over yeah, it. Yeah. And so they they go back home. And surprisingly, they have family dinners every night, it seems. Yeah. So yeah, they go home and Ginger's mom baked apparently Ginger's favorite cake, and that's when Ginger's like, You told her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you feel really bad for Bridget because, like, she really didn't, but Ginger has no interest in hearing that. And they start getting into it, and Bridget lists her grievances. And I thought it was really interesting where she starts off saying stuff about the wounds, but ends with talking about, like, you're doing drugs with boys, something is definitely wrong. Like, the things that are more concerning to her are the things that would just be like a uh, a normal part of growing up and sort of exploring the boundaries of what you had done before, especially when you start going through puberty and and start having sexual interest in other people. Mm -hmm. So the one year difference between the two of them doesn't sound like a lot, but But it's a huge divide. It ends up being a huge divide. Exactly. It's like, it's a very small scene. So, but it's later on when she's ginger starts getting all these changes and it's, like she gets the gray hairs and she's sprouting even more hair and her legs are more hairy than normal hormone hairy legs right. uh, and like her mom like she she's shaving and the blades are just breaking because it's like werewolf hair and the mom yeah. sees magazines and it's like 
those women in magazines, you shouldn't feel like you have to look like them. And yeah. I, it's just like, all this conflating of the two of like coming of age and the, and the werewolfism is just like so well done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do a great job with it. And I mean, I'm sure that a lot of that is thanks to Karen Walcott and less to Steve Fawcett. Probably. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, so I'll say that they did a great job, but I will, uh, uh, my compliment will lean heavily towards Karen. <laughs> and on top of that, yeah, I just think that it's really, like so much of this feels very possessive of Bridget. It feels like she's more concerned about losing her sister as a friend. And this kind of calls back to when they were talking about how Ginger said she'd rather die than be average. Bridget says, I'd rather die than be alone, like, Mm -hmm. and not have her sister. And, you know, saying that, and when she was crying when Ginger was bleeding from the wound, she said, I thought I was going to lose you, not I thought you were going to die. Like, just, it's all very possessive. It's very, like, in her relationship to Ginger is how she's viewing everything. So I I just think that's done really well. Bridget starts doing more research. She's, like, tracking Ginger's changes, and she's learning about periods and, and werewolves at the same time. And I think we see Ginger's tail at this point as well, that she's starting to grow her tail. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's like, shortly hereafter, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of in this couple scenes of her doing this research and learning more about it. And while this is happening, the changes in Ginger get more and more pronounced. She's getting more aggressive in terms of her uh, sexuality and also her just general attitude. There's that classic, like, walk down the hallway shot. Oh my god, okay, so can we just stop there for a second? And I just want to talk about Jennifer's body with that scene. Let's let's (laughs) use this as uh, the transition here. Because you're talking about it, Karen, but there's Karen Kusama. So, like, that Karen took this Karen's work too <laughs> because honestly as soon as I saw that hallway scene al- al- already there's a lot of similar themes like Jennifer's body has uh, similar to Ginger Snaps but that hallway scene is just like the exact hallway scene in Jennifer's body as well just like coming in tight clothing showing some cleavage male gaze and it's just the same thing, like challenging the male gaze, basically, and using it to her advantage, which Ginger does as she transforms. Yeah. And same thing with Jennifer and Jennifer's body. There's a lot of really awesome sort of uh, thematic similarities between the two of them, especially in the way that women sort of get played against each other in terms of their relationships so often become defined by men in these movies and the fact that they are sort of pitted against each other uh which i I think happens a lot in real life as well and that it's it's kind of like oh the only way that i can move up the social ladder is by stepping on the backs of other people and so in this case when ginger starts sort of leaving her sister behind she is punching down at her and making her look worse in order to sort of climb this social ladder and Mm -hmm. and get more acceptance from her peers and that definitely uh, happens between jennifer and needy and jennifer's body i think it's very well communicated in that movie people who want to listen to the jennifer's body episode of the show if you haven't already you should it's it's really i think it's great it's with darcy isn't it 
Yeah, Darcy and Darcy's amazing, so you yeah. guys should listen. <laughs> Darcy rules, and she, I think, did a really awesome job. And she was actually the one who got me to watch that movie. So it's a great movie. Thanks again to Darcy. So. Yeah, it's just I was gonna mention how it's similar also to them both using their sexuality to mm-hmm. prey on men predominantly, yeah. and so using that male gaze against the men in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. And their appetites, both sexually charged. Ginger talks about how her desire to like rip things to shreds. She thought it was just horniness, but like. Yeah. <laughs> no, not the case. Not the case. Uh, yeah. You're sort of in this, the classic scenario of this walk down the hallway very male gaze heavy sort of film uh, the language I, I keep this movie is really good about using sort of established film language and then subverting it and I think that they do that because typically this scene is viewed as like glamorous it, mm-hmm. like you're supposed to be like wow that girl is so cool look how hot she is and like the mean girls scene that's the same that has exactly. all of them walking <laughs> right and and Jennifer's body does it they play it straight very satirically Mm-hmm. Like it, it's presented as Jennifer being glamorous in this moment, but in Ginger Snaps, it starts off very different. Where like she doesn't look sure when she's walking into the hallway to start with, and no, you know, she starts getting like catcalled and stuff, and there's all this attention that's showering down on her. It's negatively charged this attention, but she is she's like, I can use this. I am enjoying this, uh, even though it is like. It's it's a new experience for her that people are giving her attention at all, and so she is. She decides that she likes it, and she smiles, and she's sort of using this to her advantage. Like later, uh, right after this scene, she's kissing the head creep from before, Jason. So mm-hmm. it's the way that it sort of has that shift into the understanding of the trope by having it not start out that way. I think is something that's really interesting that this movie does. Sam confronts Bridget again and says that he thinks that it's a werewolf mm-hmm. and bridget runs off but she's like maybe you aren't crazy and then she <laughs> very you have to do you have to do it with the hair and the eyes <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like exactly. she's always looking down like, maybe, maybe you're not crazy like never really looks in people's <laughs> eyes ever <laughs> And she, but she's freaking out, and this is when she sees that Ginger is growing a tail because she like sees the blanket sort of like moving a little bit, and she looks over with the flashlight and she pulls the blanket down, and there's just a friggin' tail there, like it's like wagon, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she goes to fi- she goes she goes and finds Sam to try and get some help, but she pretends that it's happening to her that she's the one who's having this werewolf transformation. And I think that that's a really nice sort of like sisterly I'm covering up for her. I don't want her to even have this Mm -hmm. sort of stigma of going through this, even for this other sort of ostracized character, because he's the drug dealer. He has the social stigma of that um, as well. So I I like that scene, but I also like the setting for there because he's a landscaper. So he has a greenhouse so he can grow pot (laughs) during his landscape in the landscaping greenhouse. (laughs) I think it was very funny, especially like it's not even subtle. Like he has like weed wallpaper blocking the window. And he like lives in the back of the greenhouse. It's like, what is this landscaping company? (laughs) 
<laughs> but they they literally say we're gonna throw out the Hollywood rules because his van isn't a silver bullet, and that managed to kill it. And they speculate that there has to be a cure, or there'd be a lot more of them running around. And he says that he thinks that the reason that this silver bullet idea got started is because the ancients thought that silver or pure metals purified the blood, and so he gives her a silver earring. And that a friend of his had pierced an infection with a silver hoop. And then and the infection it, cleared up. Yeah. Exactly. And so he's like, hey, maybe, maybe this will work. It could I work. don't know. Yeah. Ginger still thinks that Bridget told her mom. And so she's still pissed and ignores Bridget's warnings. And she goes and has unprotected sex with Jason, who uh, there's, again, sort of this interesting dynamic here because... Jason is being shitty during it, and and when Bridget starts being aggressive towards him sexually, she starts like ginger, coming on to him. Ginger, yes, yeah. Sorry, yeah. When Bridget <laughs> uh, Ginger starts like pushing him down, and she's like gets on top of him, and she's like, "Oh, who's the guy here?" And and she's this, like, "Who's the guy? Who's exa- the guy? I'll show you who's the guy." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's the way that it's sort of. Uh, yeah, it just uses these uh, like these things that we understand as like the typical way that movies and oftentimes real life, the way that these things would play out. And in any other movie, this scene would have been like so much of like the man trying to like seduce mm-hmm. the girl to like, quote unquote, give it up. And it would have been cheesy. It would have been cheesy. It would have been like a cheesy trope. Exactly. But. Exactly. And so this subversion of it is really, really great. And he, she pressures him into this sex. Basically mm-hmm. it's the, he, he the, I think he even says like, shouldn't we get, protection or yeah she just grinds right on top (laughs) it's a really (laughs) intense role reversal in terms of the usual dynamics as portrayed by film and uh it's it's really great and she like bites into him and and her spine gets all fucked up while she's riding on top of him and it's really really great shot when she returns home and bridget finds her both covered in and puking up blood it's got this like fun Dutch angle and vibrant green yeah. tile behind her. It just really looks great. I honestly think this is one of Catherine's best acted scenes for some reason. Uh, yeah. I think that's just because I don't know. Cause I don't know if I'd be able to act like the way that she's like cradling the toilet and she's like <laughs> looking up at Bridget, like, oh, I'm so sick. Like, yeah. I don't know. Something's wrong with me. I don't know. Like, I just, I loved that. I thought she did like a great job with that yeah and it's it's really great because on top of that you you get to see another sort of incremental step in her progression where you see that her nails are claws now this is the first time that that's been the case yeah and there's a really great swerve here where it's my thought was uh, this is clearly what they it was a good fake out it's a great fake out (laughs) yeah they they want you to think that she killed jason here and she's talking about how like oh i thought that i just wanted to have sex but i just wanted to tear something apart and you saw her like sort of bite into jason and you think it's him but in fact she killed norman the neighbor's dog yeah just a, a great swerve i think it's really awesome and bridget convinces ginger to try the piercing um, but they struggle during this piercing scene and Ginger gets all like fangly and so, it's scary. It's yeah. a scary scene. So, like. so to be fair, okay, this is also very like real teenage life. I remember when I was a teenager and people were doing home body piercing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also they, they pierce her navel with the, with the silver ring, not her ear, which presumably right. maybe are probably already pierced. But fun fact, 
I will say it here, which is why I'm such like a Catherine Isabel stan, I guess. So I volunteer for Montreal Comic-Con. And about five years ago, so I'm a guest liaison. So basically for the weekend, I hang out with one of the celebrity guests. I'm at their booth with them and help them with their fans and whatever. So for my first time doing it, uh, I was actually with Catherine Isabel. And the Saska sisters were right next to us. So it was like me, Catherine Isabel, the Saska sisters, and we like hung out all weekend, which was great. That's fun. Um, yeah. And one of the prints, so, you know, at the tables at Comic-Con, they usually sell prints and they sign whatever. Right. One of the prints was actually a Ginger Snaps print. And it was the print of her lying back uh, on the bed and just like her like, pained face as Bridget (laughs) was like putting in the ring and I loved that print it was yeah that's cool as hell it's a really scary moment it's it's really intense and like the like she's clearly in agony I mean listen so I once upon a time had my ear pierced and everyone told (laughs) me once upon a time (laughs) yeah it's, it's not the case anymore but once upon a time and I was told George it doesn't hurt at all no pain at all and fuck everyone who told me that it didn't didn't hurt for a very long time but it sure as hell hurt so i can only imagine that going through the navel is much more painful than it's the actually than the it's actually not that bad uh, so cartilage, yeah, that's exactly what they said last no, time car- cartilage like <laughs> tends to hurt more like i have an industrial so it's like two piercings mm. on the edge of my one ear and that right. was like my most painful piercing is and i have like tons wow. of stuff pierced so right so All right, well well, maybe, so maybe, maybe maybe you just suck, George. I don't know what yeah. to tell you. Hey, look, I'm definitely a wuss when it comes to it comes to pain. So, but interestingly, I will say that uh, I think tattoos actually do not hurt. They just kind of feel like uh, like sunburn a little bit. Right? I, I, f- I feel like they feel like a cat scratching the same place over and over again. A little bit, and yeah. It, and like once that think, adrenaline goes, it starts to feel good. Exactly, kinda. exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just get more tattoos, no more piercings. There you go, uh, that's no fine. Matter, you'll, you'll, no matter how uh, okay the navel apparently feels to get pierced. <laughs> so. I, I think you could rock that navel piercing, George. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we'll see. I, I, I know it would be a good look for me, but I yeah. just, uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll try it. Ginger... One thing I really like here is that no matter how much they're in this fight, Ginger and Bridget, there is sort of still that sisterly bond, that loyalty that they have to each mm-hmm. other because Trina is pissed about Bridget talking to Sam because Trina thinks that Sam is her boyfriend. I should, yeah, when but I said that. Even really, though I don't think throughout the movie Sam says a word to Trina, maybe like one word. Yeah, the exactly. whole movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's uh she is constantly like waving at him and everything and being like, Oh hey, hey Sam and and he just kinda ignores her the whole time. And she is jealous that she's ta- that Bridget is talking with him and so she shoves Bridget again and Ginger just beats the fuck out of this Trina. Is field hockey fizzette again. Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, boy, they're not kidding when they say that field hockey can get dangerous because yep. It's uh, <laughs> when you have someone like Ginger on the opposite team, she'll lay you the fuck out. Yeah. And um, she is just beating the crap out of her. And meanwhile, Jason is pissing blood. Oh, oh yeah. That scene. Oh, my God. Okay. So they're field hockey. The boys are on the bleachers again, uh, like wanting to catcall and look at the girls playing field hockey. When Jason comes up, his face is like all scarred. His like lip is like, like 
like cut up and shit and he just and like i don't know it's so weird to me how the other boys were like and he's just like what did he say ginger said she rocked my world ginger rocked my world and the boys just take it in stride as if like that's what your face should look like after sex I bet that they are virgins, and they, uh, like, they're just like, maybe, uh, good just, for you, I guess, just, Jason. It just made me laugh so much, because I'm like, hmm, yeah, what do they um, think sex looks like? He's, he's, Jason does not look good. He is falling apart. Yeah. And it's. I think that it is kind of interesting, though, that when you kind of extrapolate it out to being puberty, and you see that Jason looks much more monstrous, and he's, like, falling apart, and he's you know getting much more disheveled mm-hmm. uh, but when you counterbalance that with uh ginger sort of becoming more enhanced by this transformation in terms of like her confidence and her boobs getting bigger and and all of this sort of transition stuff that's happening for her puberty it, it, it's kind of interesting the way that it, it diverges between jason and ginger mm-hmm. like i said he's literally pissing blood he yells at someone he's like what are you looking at my red pen exploded <laughs> Your pen, my pen. <laughs> um, it's really funny, and Bridget realizes that Ginger passed this to to Jason. Yeah, and she she like yeah she she accuses Ginger of having unprotected sex yeah. with him and just giving him like anthropy. <laughs> yeah, locked up. But also interesting that like that that is something that is capable of transferring it. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought was interesting. Well, well, I mean, she did bloody him up quite a that's bit. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Like she scratched him. She bit him. Yeah. Okay. So. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but they both go to see Sam, Ginger, and Bridget, who suggests this monkshood solution. He says that it's like a safer wolfsbane. Yeah. Well, I have to say that here you were talking about Bridget being protective of Ginger. Well, as in like for herself like right um, for her, yeah. yeah but i mean here ginger like before they see sam like ginger's going because ginger thinks that sam only wants bridget for sex or just yeah. to like corrupt her or like they only want one thing and you see kind of this newfound idea of men in ginger forming yeah which is interesting. I like at some point I'm like, so are they like so this puberty, but also the werewolf is just pure id as she turns. Like she's very aggressive now, and like yeah, it's working on a bunch of levels. Yeah, uh, it's it, I really like it. And basically, what happens is Sam is like, hey, this would be a great plan, but also this plant is only found in the spring, so basically get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, He's like, I planted some seeds, but you know that's yeah. not going to be ready for a while. Yeah, just come back to me in the spring. <laughs> yeah, and. Trina shows up that night at the Fitzgerald house. Also, I should say that Ginger is very poorly behaved here. <laughs> she yes. is uh, considering how much Sam is trying to help out, even if she suspects it's for the wrong reasons. Um, he is, I mean, giving ideas. That's more than Ginger's doing. Mm-hmm. But they go home and Trina shows up and she accuses Ginger of kidnapping her dog. And Ginger just starts fighting her again. Like they, they're, they're getting into it. And Ginger blames Bridget for this fight she's like you picked sam over me and so this is your fault that i'm acting this way and that i'm so aggressive and like a lot of sort of projection happening here and we see that the things in the pact are really what they're the most scared of bridget is scared of drifting away from her sister 
and Ginger is scared of Bridget basically confronts her later down the road of like sabotaging Bridget. Mm-hmm. And there is sort of this like fear of being average, but like not, but she also like wants to be superior to her sister. Like she likes feeling good. And when she has her sister there to push off of, you know, she's younger than her. She, she's, she's a lot more malleable. Like Ginger always came across throughout the movie as the sister that had most of the drive, like maybe Bridget would come up with plans, but Ginger was the one that saw them through or yeah. The uh, instigator. Yeah. Yeah. Bridget's much more mousy, shy, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, there's also a, a lot more exploration of the men around them all being predatory and sort of like this idea of the corruption of innocence that we've been talking about yep. where Trina also says that Sam is only interested in virgins mm-hmm. and that's why he's talking to Bridget. And so two people now have said that this is the only reason that uh, Sam is talking to Bridget, which first of all, can't feel very nice for Bridget to be like the only re- like this dude is acting totally normal and everyone around me is saying like, oh, he's just trying to get into your pants. And yeah. then on top of that, he's significantly older than she is. So it would be very creepy if, if yeah. that was in fact the case. So uh, there, it's, it's really this idea. Like, you're, you're like, how much of it is people lashing out? I mean, Trina is, is obviously very upset, but she also had sex with Sam and, and is she pissed that, he's clearly ignoring her now i'm assuming she was a virgin before it right or else i don't think she would have said that so yeah right (laughs) Uh, as she fights with ginger trina is accidentally killed because she slips on some milk well i mean ginger ginger was like choking her and then trina grabs a knife and was like stay away right and then yeah during the scuffle Yep. Yeah, this is when that gross noise happens, and Honk. it looks it looks really, really great, and it really reminds me of uh, the movie It's Alive, because it has sort of this red mixing into the white of the milk, and it's mm-hmm. this really great imagery of, like, you know, in typical color Don't symbol- cry symbolism. over spilled milk and blood. Yeah, definitely not <laughs> that, but also it's like... You have sort of this white tableau of the milk there, and then it's corrupted and tainted by this red violence sort of seeping into it. It's very easy to sort of see that as the purity of ginger pre-lycanthropy. Yeah, great um, metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I, I I also like the callback because the way so their parents get home at that point and then they have to rush to clean up everything, but they don't have they clean up the body, but they don't have time to clean up the blood and milk so ginger lays face down in in it and bridget starts snapping photos and dad comes in and they play it off as more pictures for that project the the death project they were doing they were like oh it's it's (laughs) cornstarched you want to taste daddy (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's she's like licking it off like yeah it's really gross that she's sitting there like sucking the blood off of her fingers and i mean it does work in terms of convincing her dad that it's just corn syrup so yeah well done there but two of the fingers as they're hiding this body snapped off yeah they hide it in their back shed right and the fingers are sort of misplaced while they're burying her back there and ginger says they won't be suspected 
because a woman can only be a slut, a tease, a bitch, or the virgin next door. And so yeah. there is this sort of like embittering worldview that you were talking about where she is sort of having a much more negative perspective on the people around her and what that means for her and the way that she's treated. Mm-hmm. Bridget tells her sister that she can't go out anymore, but Ginger says that she'll go mental. And so they decide that they're going to make their parents think that she's at school and school think that she's at home until they get it cured and then they're going to skip out of town together. And Which, you know, pretty good plan. I guess, but they <laughs> fuck it up so hard that yeah, like, they, they I they didn't uh like the school like calls to check up on like Bridget forges a note <laughs> and then the school calls and the mom's like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The minute that anyone checked any step of it, the plan falls apart, but nonetheless, it sounds at least reasonable and at school that next day, Jason pulls Bridget into a supply closet and He's, again, all fucked up, even worse, and he's similarly fangly now, Mm -hmm. and he's also growing a tail, and it's like, man, this puberty metaphor hit him hard because (laughs) he is is fucked up, and he also killed his own dog, and he's extremely threatening in this moment, especially when knowing the way that Ginger had been going through it and feeling extremely aggressive, both physically and sexually, you start to get really worried about Bridget in this moment of like, she's separated from everyone. They're in this supply closet in like the basement of the school. It's a really frightening moment for her. And thankfully the custodian shows up and Jason kind of bails. Cause he, you know, whatever he had in mind is not going to happen because Bridget was like, hurting me is not going to do anything about curing you or or Ginger. And he's like, well, we'll see. Like, he's clearly thinking about hurting her in some way. And it's uh, like, thank God this janitor shows up. And especially this helps to set up stuff down the road in terms of like straws that break camel's backs yeah in terms of uh, well the janitor janitor was at the beginning too right like he's kind of he was at the beginning when brit after trina had knocked over bridget and like they were cleaning up in the locker room so i feel like he's kind of uh yeah he he appears three times so this is the second time that night at dinner her mom does confront ginger about not going to school and the dad is there just chomping away not yeah. talking and the mom is like she he just says stay in your own little world because this one just confuses you mm-hmm. and even even though the dad is like the first one to say i think they're up to something <laughs> that's like the yeah. only like useful information <laughs> that he ever sees yeah. he's um <laughs> the, he's like a lump he really is and yeah it's, it's funny and you feel really bad for the mom having to sort of it really feels like she's raising the the kids on 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 her own own. yeah Yeah. and ginger is freaking out and trying to cut off her tail but bridget shows her the monk's hood and she's like look our mom found or she was like gonna do the craft project (laughs) and it's it's great bridget locks ginger in the bathroom this is halloween now Mm -hmm. and she locks her in the bathroom so that she doesn't hurt anyone because, of and, course, it's Halloween. That's the day. Right. <laughs> exactly. And Ginger insults her, insults Bridget, by calling her a sissy little girl. And I that moment really st- uh, struck out, or not struck out, really stuck out to me. Because it really feels like there's sort of a fear of femininity 
that is kind of permeating this movie in terms of what in terms of the negative attention that it can draw to you from men and from predators that's definitely a theme that's throughout the whole movie from the catcalling classmates to just the fear of puberty the girls going through puberty and just in yeah just in general like all this stuff with sam and trina saying that he only uh has sex with virgins etc like it's i would say that that is a, definitely a strong theme of yeah i mean it, you can also even just see it in the clothing choices like how both of them start out wearing these like really baggy jackets and yeah. sweaters and stuff yeah and showing then, no form whatsoever. exactly yeah. and bridget maintains that basically through the entire movie but as we said, Ginger starts to show a little more skin and dress a little more revealingly, and it's like she's using that to uh, her benefit because she's trying to manipulate these people and, and get at them, but it's sort of like a push-pull. Like, she hates what it gets her, but she also is like, well, if this is, if this is what's going to happen, then I'm going to use it to punish people. Yeah, for sure. Bridget takes the monk's hood. And she and Sam make this cure together. And meanwhile, Ginger is freaking out in the bathroom. Like she's basically tearing it's, herself. It's a really apart. good montage, actually, because they're making yeah. they're making the antidote, and they're they're like boiling the the monk's hood in like little like alcohol, and like putting it in a syringe. And all the while, Ginger's like clawing up the <laughs> bathroom door, like screaming, going crazy. She's going nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's breaking down this door, but she's making herself bloody in the process. And Sam reveals that he knows that it's Ginger who is the wolf because yeah. he's not a fucking idiot. Like Br- Br- Bridget's <laughs> very transparent. <laughs> yeah. And Bridget goes back with this solution and she's trying to track down Ginger because she sees that she broke out of the door and Bridget gets attacked by Jason who is now who's even worse yeah. yeah he's he's also like about to kill like a kid like a little kid there yeah. and she like stops him from doing that and so he attacks her instead and she defends herself by using this syringe and he immediately changes he's like oh i, I gotta go i gotta go and he like it proves that it's a cure basically but now yeah. she doesn't have any more <laughs> yeah. so a bad situation and like she tracks ginger to the school and she finds out that Ginger murdered this guidance counselor because Ginger, like, showed up, flashed two of the creep boys, and then the guidance counselor saw her and was like, uh, come into my office. And so yeah. she just brutalizes him. I, this she, she's she's so aggressive at this point. Like, she's, yeah, she's just really, like, quick to anger. She's just like the wolf is at the surface at yeah. this point. Yeah. And it, I think this scene looks great. Like his yeah. face is fucked up. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really well done. Really well done. Yeah, great effects there. And back at the house, the parents find the fingers in the yard and the mom convinces the dad that they're fake and puts them aside. But you see on her face that she's like, I know. Yeah. And, uh, and be- yeah, yeah. At this point, she obviously even knows that it's Trina because the cops had come by. They had all of those wonderfully Canadian bilingual missing posters. <laughs> they sure did. I everywhere. noticed that as well. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
still aggressively Canadian. <laughs> and she convinces him and she puts him aside and you're like wondering, you're, I was so curious the first time I saw this. I was like, what is going to happen with this? Like, is she going to turn them in or what? Bridget goes to find some supplies to clean the office with after everyone leaves school. But when she returns, she sees that Ginger killing the custodian who saved her. Yeah. And... That's sort of like the trigger for Bridget because the custodian, because all all throughout the movie, I think Bridget was sort of like wasn't happy, but like could kind of rationalize the people that Ginger gored. Yeah. But this custodian was literally nothing but a nice guy or at the very least in the right place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Just an innocent bystander this whole time. Yeah. And Ginger is all excuses in this moment. Like she's just coming up with one thing after another and Bridget is freaking out. And Ginger basically cuts to the chase and she's like, I come to the dark side. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which I, okay. So there's like an awkward scene at this uh, awkward part at this point, I find too, where, uh, where I was like, when she was like, we're barely even sisters now. We, we don't even share the same DNA anymore. Yeah. Really intense. I mean, she compares killing to masturbating in terms of both operating on instinct and also the pleasure that it brings her. And it's, I think it's interesting that she is someone who has been as mousy and as shy as Bridget has been, that Ginger is trying to use sex as the lure to, like, bring her over onto this other side. And it's, it's just, like, something that seems very foreign to Bridget at this point mm-hmm. and, like, as kind of this allure of this other situation that she doesn't have a lot of experience with. It's just an interesting way that she's trying to pull her over and... Bridget basically says that she'd rather die than be what what Ginger has become. Mm-hmm. And so Ginger freaks out and she says that she's going after Sam next and she leaves Bridget alone. Sam's Halloween party exactly. at the greenhouse. Hell yeah. Uh, again, <laughs> I don't know what's going on at that business. <laughs> but um, Bridget is running to try and stop her and the her, their mom... Finds, Drives up in a minivan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she picks her up. At, well, first of all, yeah, I, I do think it's funny that, again, sort of playing into this arch, uh, archetypical mom character, she has a minivan, of course, because that yeah. w- that's what moms have. I can't, I can't get over, like, the two ringlets on the side of yeah, her so hairstyle. Funny. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> she's, she's really great, though, and she says in this moment that she will protect them, that she's not, like, she's going to, fill up the house with gas tomorrow and that they're going to burn it down. And she doesn't care about the dad because he, he'll just blame the mom anyway. And that they're all going to run off. Yeah. I I think she sort of like, she, she talks about her mother's love, but she also sort of talks about how she blames herself for how they turned out. Yeah. Yeah. That self blame is really intense. Yeah. I, I think it was, I think it's really interesting because honestly, it's something you really don't expect at all. Yeah. Like you just see this wholesome mom that's full of like all baked goods and everything. And then she finds out that her kids killed someone and she's like, it's okay. We'll go on the run. Yeah. Fuck your dad. We'll burn all the evidence yeah. and we'll just make it in the world. Like it's yeah. It's just like such an unexpected turn of events. Yeah. And a, a happy one. You're very, I, yeah. I mean like the mom clearly throughout this whole movie is trying. She's yeah. trying her best. She's reaching out to the daughters uh, the best that she can. And 
at one point Bridget was like or the mom asked Bridget like should I go talk to Ginger and Bridget is like no she thinks it's cool that you let us figure things out yeah. for ourselves and the mom is like I was like she's like very sad but like also kind of happy in that moment she was like I was wondering if that approach was working like she has all of these these magazines around that I'm sure are filled with things about how you're a terrible mother and actually you need to be doing it this way and here's all this mm-hmm. self-help stuff and it's very like raising them as we saw with the dad just being inanimate furniture it was is really like a one person job one parent job yeah (laughs) you feel bad for her for sure and um it's nice that she sort of has this inner strength that we had seen just by virtue of her not having cracked under this pressure but here it's very explicit that she has this loyalty to her daughters and uh and and that strength there bridget arrives at the party to find sam rejecting ginger's advances again and at this point, Ginger looks like she's wearing, like, everyone thinks she's wearing a Halloween ma- mask or yeah. Halloween makeup because, like, her eyes have turned gray. She has, like, this muzzly looking yeah, nose. Yeah, her nose is very, like, the like, bridge like, is very uh, pronounced. Yeah, and she, her hair is mostly gray now, all the fangs and yeah. She's wolfy. She's wolfy as hell right now. (laughs) Super wolfy. (laughs) Again, there's clearly been some projection on Ginger's part about jealousy and the way that she's jealous of the idea that Sam is into her sister, even though he clearly says that he's not several times. He tells Ginger that. He tells Bridget that. Yeah. And Bridget also says some fucked up shit that kind of reveals where her mind is at in terms of like, you know, you want to, everyone does like, uh, and, and she literally says like, like me and the idea of her feeling like her only value is as this sexual being that's been, as we said, you know, just from the guys constantly catcalling them while, while they're playing field hockey, Mm-hmm. They they are making her feel like this is the only thing that she has to offer, and so yep. it's infected her like this lycanthropy. This the idea yeah. that this is how she provides value. That, yeah, that, that that's all. That's her only value is her sexual sexuality. I guess like just being a sex object is the only value she brings the world. Right, and he is not into it, and she he like tries to like stop her and she breaks his arm i mean they make out a little they bit. do they but- do <laughs> but eventually he says no get off me I, you also you wonder like how far it would have gone if he would have actually stopped her if she didn't look like a fucking wolf at the time yeah. and like how much that yeah. would have uh, played into it but in despair bridget sees this and she says that ginger wrecks everything for her that isn't about her sister so fine Mm -hmm. she'll go with her like it's very like self-destructive in this moment because she cuts her palm and she infects herself with ginger's blood as sam pleads with her not to do which is like the only way to get ginger to stop so right because ginger is like inconsolable at that at this point like ginger just a monster at this point really yeah and this is the only way that she can kind of convince her of that loyalty that she still has to her sister or at least to the the sister that she once knew Mm -hmm. and as they leave because ginger now agrees to be helped and she believes that bridget is trying to help her because she took this hit bridget sees her mom searching for them and they decide that they're gonna run away that they can't do this to their mom they like and have her fuck up her whole life for them and sam knocks ginger out with a shovel saying that he can't let her do this 
uh, Bridget is like, what the fuck are you doing? I had the secret plan all along that we were going to actually just It was under it. control. <laughs> and he's like, I, you know, I didn't know. And uh, I, it's a very funny scene. But Bridget and Sam take her back to the Fitzgerald house in his van to prepare more of that cure for her. He, she's like, we have more of the uh, monkshood. And on the way there, Ginger fully transforms into this werewolf. She's now completely gone. All remnant of humanity basically gone. And she escapes yeah. the van. Sam and Bridget hide in escapes the, the van into their house. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, which on the one hand, you're like, well, good. She's contained in this house. But also you're like, fuck, we have to go into this house where there's a werewolf. <laughs> that dad is dead. Yeah, that, seems, that seems probable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was furniture anyways. We've already exactly, established this. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe she didn't even notice him. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Sam and Bridget hide in the pantry as Sam is making this cure. And they come up with this plan. But... Again, there's some really great subversion here where literally the minute they open the door, he just gets absolutely fucked. Like he, He's completely gored. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's such a great thing where you're like, okay, they came up with this plan, let's see it enacted, and it just goes wrong the second that they start to try and get it going. And Bridget picks up the dropped syringe and follows the blood trail from Sam. Well, yeah, find Sam, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, yeah, he got pulled away, and she's like following him. She grabs the syringe, and she has a knife. And she she finds Sam, and he's just absolutely torn to shreds. And she tries to drink his blood in an attempt to calm down Ginger. That, it's that's why where I think that like Ginger, it, like there's no humanity, but there's like a little bit of that still loyalty in that werewolf brain somewhere. Yeah, it's, because it's it's like Ginger's allowing Bridget to feed on her kill. Yeah, that like, uh, pack mentality kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like, you're, like, you're part of my pack, so here, I, I got us a meal, yeah. you know? It's, it seems like it's working, but Bridget can't keep it. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mike down! <laughs> That's my Italian gesturing coming into, uh, into play. <laughs> yeah, Bridget, she can't keep it down, and she, like, pukes it up, and she refuses to try again. She's like, I can't do this. I can't do it. And Ginger sees this revulsion, and she again lashes out and she kills sam in front of her finally like totally ending him because he was still alive yeah. suffering he was, yeah. here yeah. um and she she bites through his jugular that and was a sad that, that was a sad death i liked sam i agree yeah. um yeah he's uh he's the fun bad boy of the town yeah. and uh yeah. as ginger stalks bridget through this basement because bridget is obviously upset about this bridget goes back to their bedroom oh and she actually i was wrong she didn't have the knife but she finds the knife here because it's the one that ginger had been trying to saw her tail off with yeah and it was in their bedroom in their wardrobe bridget is like hold, she's backing up and she's holding the syringe and the knife in the other hand and she's pleading with ginger and and so you kind of hinted at this uh do you you don't think that ginger is really in there at all anymore because i was thinking about this myself i i'm not sure how i feel about it if i think i she's I, in there. I feel like part of her is because even though that eating of sam before is part of like this kind of pack mentality of like wolves run in packs so you're like one is gonna kill and or they're gonna kill together and eat to feast together i still feel like there has to there's something mm -hmm. and i feel like this scene the way that they do it is interesting because you throughout this whole last the end of the movie you don't see all of ginger i feel like you see like flashes and you see flashes of eyes and i don't know what you don't think she's in there at all um i don't know i see the 
the fact that she lunges out at Bridget mm-hmm. in this very final moment where she she like lunges at her and she gets impaled on the knife. Yeah. And I don't know, like the the fact that she was willing to say like we're barely even sisters anymore and like She's been but pulling I, away. But I feel like she's infected now, right? So if she was lunging, it could incapacitate her because she has the knife. Yeah. But she would be turning anyways. It's true. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's interesting. I don't know. Viewers, listeners, whatever the hell you are. Listeners. <laughs> Viewers, view this podcast. <laughs> uh, tell us what you think. Do you think that... Um, that ginger is still inside that wolf or it's uh just pure wolf at that point let us know but yeah she she lunges out she impales herself on this knife and uh so bridget has accidentally killed her sister and she just lays her head on ginger's dying body and cries and it's a real sad ending in in this moment where you're happy that Mm -hmm. bridget made it but her life is real fucked up and as we've seen she sort of had to deal with losing her sister in terms of the drift but now it's finalized and and the deed is done and it's just a great ending and now, Brittany, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is the best horror movie ever made. And uh, <laughs> we talked a lot about what makes it great, but I'll give you a chance now to uh, start us off and, and say exactly why it's the best. Because it's a tale of two sisters, of sisterhood. <laughs> it's about family. <laughs> it's about family. <laughs> it's all about family. <laughs> I need like the Vin Diesel voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just picture it. Picture it in your head, everyone. <laughs> I think it just, it's, we didn't talk about this, but it's shot really well. I feel like it's framed really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you really f- feel like the, like Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel embodying these characters are sisters. You really feel their bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I just find it's authentic. Like, you don't feel like... When you see a lot of movies... This is long-winded. But when you see a lot of movies that are set in high school, a lot of the times you don't feel like these characters are high schoolers. And I feel like in this one, you do. Yeah. And it's it's really important, too, because I, I for, my, for me, that can really make or break your movie. Like, watching the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, no one feels like they're in high school. And it yeah. really makes it hard to take it seriously. <laughs> and so the yeah. fact that they do feel so authentic in this role, I think, is hugely important. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I think it's well written. Like, the, the writing is really well done. The special effects, you think you're coming into the watching, like, a B-movie, a low-budget B-movie. But in reality, the special effects, the, the shots that they, te- that they choose to do, like the guidance counselor with his head gored open, yeah. the janitor getting slammed up against the, the school walls, it's, just, it's super well done. And, I, and it's a take on the werewolf, on a werewolf movie, that I haven't seen elsewhere. I don't think I've seen another one that takes werewolves in this way. Yeah. So just for that, if you want a unique take on the werewolf myth, definitely. There you go. I uh, totally agree. <laughs> I, uh, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because not only are the performances fantastic, I mean, like we said, uh, the, the whole cast is good, but really this is Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel's movie and they just yeah. knock it out of the park. Emily Perkins in particular, I really was just astounded by her performance this watch through um, and how much she's really bringing to it. I think her arc in this movie is so great um, in terms mm-hmm. of the writing of it. And Karen Walton, you did a great job with this writing. But 
I think more to to your point about how unique this movie is, that is what really sells it for me as the best because it takes something that is incredibly well established like werewolves. You know, I mean, it's one of the universal monsters and the fact that it is able to so many years later do something so unique with it, but make it feel like such a good fit. The idea of using it as a metaphor for puberty it it feels you're shocked that this hasn't been done before because it fits so well and the fact that they they found this and they executed it incredibly well to me that makes it the best horror movie ever made Brittany, this was so much fun. I want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, This was great. Uh, we need to do the sequel now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Ginger Snaps 2 Unleashed, I believe it's called, which is a fun <laughs> leash. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Emily Perkins and Tatiana Maslany. Wow. Canadian icons. So, yep. But why don't, we, uh, why don't you tell the people where they can find you if they want to check out the games that you guys make or, or social or anything? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter at existentialt all together. I mainly tweet about game development and things that make me laugh and the memes for the lulls. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or uh, you can check out at Cardboard Utopia, which is uh, the studio I run. We have one of our games, we have our first game that's out on Steam, Xbox One, Switch, PS4, called Children of Zodiacs. It's a tactical JRPG, so if you like those, check it out. Yeah, it's fun. definitely. Yeah. That's where. <laughs> Great. Yeah, go check those things out. Go check out uh, Children of the Zodiacs, and uh, it, it's, it looks amazing. I haven't actually gotten a chance to check it out myself yet, but uh, Brittany has been supplying me with plenty of screenshots <laughs> and stuff, and every time I'm like, damn, I really got to play that game. It's really so. good on Switch. You need to get it on Switch. Uh, all right, that, that'll, that'll be the platform I get it on. But as far as my plugs, you can... Find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show's Twitter at Little Horror PHL. And there's all kinds of fun stuff like show notes now on LittleHorrorPHL.com. Uh, so fancy. Yeah, right? We're practically a real podcast. <laughs> and, <laughs> and basically, it boils down to if you really want to help the show, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can find a link to the merch on LittleHorrorPHL.com. Should finish that sentence. <laughs> Um, And that's pretty much it. So thanks again, Brittany. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. George here. In addition to the usual plugs, we're actually launching a Patreon for the Best Little Horror House in Philly as well. So if you want to support the show, uh, you can do it that way. There's multiple tiers with ad-free and early episodes of the show, plus bonus content, including more choose-your-own-adventure episodes, bringing people on to talk about horror books and video games in addition to movies, and even movie commentary tracks that we'll be doing. So check that out at patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL. That's patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL.